Some pretty strong language there, isn't there? I uh, said last week that John is full of personal warmth as he writes his letter. And at the same time, there's these urgent warnings throughout his letter. And as we come to this passage, uh, we need to move those two extremes even further out. He begins almost exploding with delight and joy and wonder. But as he continues, this passage contains some of the strongest and most confronting warnings about sin. Uh, So before we look at it, let's ask God to help us understand it uh, and to really appreciate the breadth and depth of what he has to communicate to us this morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, our our sin so often blinds us and we fail to see your gracious hand at work in our lives. And for this we ask your forgiveness. And yet in your mercy you've revealed yourself in your word. So as we look at it together now, please help us to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply and to obey you more fully. And we ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, the word lavish, you can see it there in verse 1, makes me think of fresh pumpkin scones smothered in butter. Lavish butter. Actually, after this morning, perhaps I should have said, uh, you know, banana and choc chip uh, pancakes smothered in maple syrup. That's what I did. Smothered in maple syrup. Yeah, sickly sweet, but it was good. It was, it was fantastic. Now, as I look at the picture up on the screen there, you know, if we were scones, God's love would be the butter melting deep into our hearts. It's a great picture. Isn't it? Look at verse 1. John is just full of delight. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, he says. And I'd love to dwell on just that one verse. Spend the whole morning joining John in his delight. Unpacking in detail what it means on a day like this, Father's Day, to know what it is to be children of God. And can I just say that if there's anyone here this morning, if you don't, do not yet know God as your heavenly Father, if you've not yet placed your trust in Jesus, his Son, to take away your sins, if you have not yet experienced the relief of your guilt being lifted from you and your heart being washed clean by the power of God, uh, if you do not yet know and feel the joy of being a child of God, today's the day to change all that. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Travel through life with Jesus. Because it's only him that can give us the certain hope of being with him. Eternal life. Can I encourage you? If that is you, talk to me. Talk to someone after the service who can help you find the joy God desires you to have. But here, John keeps going. Immediately after that glorious start, he, he acknowledges that we, the children of God, no longer fit naturally in a sin broken world. See the end of verse 1? The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, referring to Jesus. 
And what's more, verse 2 points out that we are destined to be with Jesus. And when we're with Jesus, we're going to be like Jesus when he comes again. So there's a real clash for us and it raises a vital question. If our trust is in Jesus and our sins are forgiven and we're destined for heaven where we'll be like our sinless saviour, how are we supposed to deal with sin now while we're still in the world? And this is where John moves to urgent warning. He is confronting, even alarming in his manner. Instead of gently encouraging the believers to resist sin, you know, make daily progress in godliness, you know, that ongoing process of sanctification, like many other New Testament writers would say, John holds up the end goal, purity and perfection. That's what we'll be like with Jesus in heaven. So strive towards it now. That's his message. And, and in fact, John warns that, that if there's no striving, it raises serious doubt about the heart condition of a person. See verse 6, very strong language. No one who keeps on sinning, so no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Do you feel the weight of that? So let me ask that question again. If our trust is in Jesus and our sins are forgiven, we're destined for heaven where we'll be like our sinless saviour, how are we supposed to deal with sin now? Well, let me share some ways people responded to that question in John's day. Uh, I think that'll help us understand why John responds the way he does. <clears throat> some people thought that they did not need Christ because they were good people and had no sin. Others thought they were sinless because, well, you know, Christ has taken away our sin, so we're sinless. John slams such ideas back in chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, he says in chapter 1, verse 8. And again in verse 10, chapter 1. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Sinless perfection is not possible this side of heaven. If we could be sinless... Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Sin matters. Others in John's day had, had genuinely put their faith in Christ but were so aware of their ongoing battle with sin that they doubted their salvation. And there were those deceivers trying to lead them astray and undermine their confidence in the gospel. So John encourages them to confess their sin, chapter 1, verse 9, to remember that Jesus has paid for their sin. He is our advocate, says it in chapter 2, and to be certain of their salvation because of Jesus. In fact, John says in the very next chapter, whoever has the Son has life. 
And again in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write all these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. No doubt about it. There's confidence. And then there were others in John's day who thought that, well, since God had forgiven them, they could sin all they liked because sin was unimportant. All their sins were forgiven. They separated belonging to Christ from behaving like Christ. So John says in verse 3, all who have this hope, belonging to Christ, all who have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. Interesting comment that, purify themselves. This is not about salvation. Jesus' blood has already purified us in the sight of God. This verse, however, is about getting ready to meet Jesus and honouring him while we wait. Our behaviour now matters. Let me illustrate. You enrol your kids in a new school. Their names are in the school database and on one of the class lists, they're in, right? They're in. So what do you do next? Well, you get them ready by buying a school uniform. Not any uniform, the school uniform for that school. You get a school bag, pens, pencils, textbooks, whatever they need so that they can arrive on day one fully ready. If our hope is heaven, to be with Jesus, our pure sinless saviour who gave his life to pay for our sin we don't go around sitting we get ourselves ready to meet him i lived in sydney in 1977 when the queen came to visit who was there who oh yeah a couple of others uh it was a big deal People got dressed up, bought, brought flowers and, and were on their best behaviour just hoping that they might actually personally get to meet the Queen. How much more should we prepare ourselves, our hearts, to meet Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It makes perfect sense. It's called being appropriate. I mean, think about it. If you get a job at Macca's, you don't turn up to work in a KFC uniform, do you? If you get a job down in mine, you don't show up in a tuxedo. If you're going to the annual Rose Society show, you don't turn up with a bunch of geraniums. If you're going to Bali for a holiday, you don't pack your ski gear. If you know you're going to meet God you get serious about sin. The logic continues in verse 4. Look at it with me. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. What's he saying there? Well, the person who breaks God's law shows by their actions that they're opposed to God who gave that law. God says, do this. We say, I know God says do this, but I'm going to do that. It's a blatant denial of God's authority over us. 
It's a blatant refusal to submit to his wonderful will for our lives. In a word, it is sin. Saying we belong to God and yet opposing God with our actions makes no sense. Teachers would say it's cognitive disjunction. The bloke on the uh, work site would probably say, yeah, hypocrite. John's point is clear. Who we are as Christians cannot be separated from what we do as Christians. Our walk must match our talk. If we belong to Christ, we must behave like Christ. Sin has no place in our lives. But our victory over sin is not a matter of sheer human willpower. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared, talking about Jesus, he appeared so that he might take away our sins. By his death, Jesus has defeated the power of sin and death in all who put their trust in him. And there's more. Look at verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. For all the devil's trickery and lies and evil demonic power, he is no match for Jesus. And over the next page in your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 4 says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. It's talking about the sinful system of the world. What does all this mean? Put it all together. It means that because of Jesus, sin, the world and the devil no longer have power over us. The person who is saved by faith in Christ has the power and the real possibility, the real choice not to sin any longer. And as we saw a moment ago, John expresses this truth in the strongest possible terms in verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now John's already made the point that who we are uh, cannot be separated from what we do. Now he says that what we do reveals who we are. The behaviour of a person who willfully continues in sin strongly suggests that they have not understood or accepted the saving work of Christ. Verse 7 reinforces the point. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The deceivers were going around saying things like, you can be righteous and not do what is right. John says, the only people who are righteous are the ones who do what is right. Notice he does not say, he who does what is right becomes righteous. Doing what is right does not save us. It does not remove our guilt. It does not pay for our sin. It does not make us pure in God's sight. Only the blood of Christ does that. What he is saying is this. The Christian 
who does what is right shows by their actions that they already belong to Jesus. And in case we still haven't got it, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Our attitudes and our actions are evidence of our spiritual parentage. We either belong to the devil or to God. Our attitudes and our actions, they do not determine our status before God, but they are a good indication of it. It's tough teaching, isn't it? John's really turned up the heat on how we deal with sin in our lives. And can I say, friends, it is a daily tension for every one of us. How seriously are we going to treat the sin in our lives? Jesus thought that our sin was serious enough to lay down his life. But what's it going to mean to me and to you? In view of God's amazing grace to us in Christ, how are we going to respond to sin and temptation. These are issues of the heart, aren't they? So let me finish with a couple of diagnostic questions. How do you respond when you become conscious of sin? What's your default response? What are you characterised by? Do you slip into a, a lukewarm, careless, presumptuous frame of mind about your own sinfulness? Do you start to coast or become indifferent? Doesn't matter. You know, whether I'm holy or worldly. Do you cast a blind eye to bad attitudes and get comfortable with sinful patterns of behaviour? Is that you? If it's you... What effect does 1 John 3 verse 9 have on your heart? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. On hearing this, the child of God is awakened to the danger of their condition. They run to God for mercy and forgiveness and his righteousness. They confess their sin and receive his cleansing. And their love for Christ is renewed. And the sweetness of their relationship is restored. Their hatred of sin is recovered and and the joy of the Lord again becomes their strength. Or perhaps when you become conscious of sin, you sink down in fear and discouragement and despair. Your righteousness, your love for people, your, your fight against sin are just not good enough. Your conscience condemns you. Your life seems so imperfect to you that that no one would even guess you're a Christian. If that's you, what effect does 1 John 3 verse 1 have on your heart? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are.
On hearing this, the child of God is rescued from despair. I am greatly loved. I am forgiven. I am accepted and including, included, not because of my own righteousness, but because Jesus has paid for my sin and clothed me in his righteousness. I am a child of God. That is God's promise. And nothing can change it. And nothing and no one can take that away from me. In this passage, John has emphasized the great seriousness of sin. His words of warning call us back from the precipice of indifference. But he's also reminded us of the great love God has lavished on us. John's words of assurance call us back from the precipice of despair. And so may God our Father give each one of us the grace and wisdom to respond to his word appropriately today to heed his warnings and delight in his promises. Amen.